Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest in today's episode is Andres Cordero of CBS Sports. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 13 magazine-style stories in our first three months, and lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. Gift subscriptions are also available. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Let's go. Our guest now is Andres Cordero. He's the lead soccer commentator for CBS Sports and Paramount Plus broadcasting Serie A games and the U.S. men's national team's away World Cup qualifiers. He also does Inter-Miami's local broadcasts with Ray Hudson. Dre, congrats on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, I've been listening to you guys for uh, for some time now. By the way, uh, adding Witty was just a masterstroke. Uh, he's been crushing it, so thanks for the invite. Awesome. Uh, lots to talk about here. You're just back from being on site at San Siro to broadcast Napoli's 1-0 win at Milan over the weekend. What was that whole experience like being in the stadium and in the city for such a big game? It's um, I've got conflicting uh, views. All of them are good. Um, but part of it was, you know, finally, after covering European football for a good 15 years now, since 2003, 2004, when I started working at Gold TV until now, you know, getting a chance to actually do these games on location as opposed to halfway across the world, which just speaks to the commitment that, that CBS have to, you know, doing whatever they do at the highest level possible. Um, I've worked for rights holders for Serie A, Bundesliga, La Liga, uh, the championship all of these years. And obviously it's easier when we're covering Major League Soccer, the U.S. national team, um, but to actually do these games from site, you know, with American voices as opposed to uh, just from there with, with what, what's available, which is usually um, UK-style commentary, uh, was a dream for me. And, and you know, walking up to the San Siro, hearing the sounds of that stadium, the fact that on a, on a big game from here from the U.S., you've got maybe three, four games going on on a given day. They'll all feel big on Twitter. But you walk outside, no one's talking about them for the most part, unless you're at a soccer-specific pub or something like that. In Milano, you just hear, you know, in the train stations, in the hotel, all across, a whisper of San Siro, a whisper of Napoli, a whisper of Ibrahimovic throughout that day. So there's this big buildup to to these games. And then you walk up to the stadium and it's got its, you know, red iron girders popping out and the big um, spires going up. And you just you feel like this is a place where big games are played. And that was an absolutely massive one. And I think the thing that sticks with me most thinking about it now is working with, with Christian Vieri for years, whenever his name was introduced, either on camera or on audio, he you know, say Christian Vieri, he'd go, I was like, what's that about? When you when you actually stand in San Siro and when you hear what that crowd sounds like, I don't blame him. I think he just wants to hear that over and over again whenever he hears his name. I know you'd probably prefer to be in the stadium all the time. It's just not possible for a lot of reasons. What sort of things do you have to adjust to when you actually do call a game in the stadium as opposed to off a screen. Yeah, so one of the reasons I said that I had sort of conflicting um, feelings about it because it, it was a big match. It felt like a big moment, but at the same time, 
there was this normalcy about it, right? Like there was this sense of, you know, these are teams that I cover intimately, that I know a lot about. There was that comfort factor that I think maybe comes a little bit from how much extra you have to prepare when you're doing games off monitor as opposed to being able to feed off of whatever's going on at the stadium. And I mean, Chris can attest to this. He's seen the sort of sticker making that I go through. Um, my stickers look like trading cards. I mean, I've got uh, players' faces on it. For example, you might be doing a, game, a team you're not so familiar with and, you know, they punch up the substitute. You can't see his number. It might be a kid that's making his debut. You can't see the, the number on the shorts or on the shirt. And so you need ways to identify them instantly, right? And so I've just, throughout the years, learning from from um, from Phil Shane, from other um, commentators, seeing how they work, um, figured, okay, well, that works, and this makes this easier. Um, you learn little tricks when you're off monitor so that you can um, make sure that you're accurate. I think the the best uh, trick and the one that I maybe struggled with the most is to just shut up. Um, you're not going to get punished for the things that, that, that you don't say. So if you're not sure, don't take a risk. I think Ross Dyer was the first one to tell me that Ross worked with us at BN Sports and went on to ESPN. Um, and so you just learn that discipline of if you're not sure, keep your mouth shut. Uh, little tricks like haircuts, the color of boots, whether they're wearing wristbands. Um, when you get to know the players and the team a little better, you can identify their, their posture, the, the way they run. Uh, you do a, a team like Napoli, for example, has like a whole army of five foot seven little playmakers who move the same way, look the same way and have the same haircut, right? So you just find these little uh, details, make notes of them in game. I'll have all these different color highlighters and I will put a little dot in the highlighted color of their boots because boots are so colorful these days um, to help just sort of lock it down in my brain. Uh, just little things like that, that that you just added throughout the years and all of it came through making massive mistakes time and time again. Commentators love bleach blonde hair. We're a big, we're big yeah. fans of bleach blonde <laughs> hair. Uh, but... I, I do think that we should like talk a little bit more about your time in Milan, though, because I don't think people really grasp. I remember I did my, my first game in person was like six years into the beginning of my career. It was actually Inter Miami's first home game, which was in front of nobody. It was in an empty stadium. And still for me, even commentating with a mask on, it was like, this is incredible. Like I can actually see the players. So can you just take us through like on a match day what Milan is like and how different it was to actually experience some of the things that maybe you talked about from having read them, but you actually can experience them because you're there. I'll tell you what, one thing that really helped is when we did the Nations League final in Denver um, to do USA-Mexico in a big you know, NFL stadium with a massive crowd. So it didn't feel like the moment was bigger than anything I'd ever experienced before even if it was because it's European soccer, because it's Milan-Napoli, because there's Scudetto implications on the line. Um, but just having been in that sort of scenario where I thought, okay, this is one of those bucket list games um, helped me out tremendously. Uh, b beyond that, the, the willingness of Serie A and of Milan to help when you are there versus when you're halfway uh, across the world and, and you know, you've got all of these um, you know, middlemen in between and you're getting information second and third hand to just be able to sort of pull somebody aside, you know, pitch side and you know, ask for, can you get us this interview? Can you, you know, where, where, where do we get this? Where do we get that? Um, I felt like they, they think that what CBS is doing is special and different from what other networks have done with City in the past. And it's not in any way a slight, it just it genuinely is uh, a, a different approach to covering a league that is not, you know, the Mexican uh, league, that is not the Premier League, it's not the number one soccer property in America, but we give it the same treatment that we would, say, a U.S. national team uh, away game, which, which we do, which we know is a big occasion for us. Um, and so that whole setup of going, you know, the day before, of being at the actual venue, of, of, of watching that place slowly fill up, the moment when, for example, all the Napoli fans came into, it's a small section of Napoli fans that are all the way in the top and all of the security that goes behind 
sort of making sure that they get there safely and more importantly that they get out uh, safely uh, eventually there was this roar from from the napoli fans when, when they arrived that it just felt like this invading army quality to it right and so at five minutes in napoli scored the uh, the opening goal off of a corner kick and a stadium of you know it's fit seventy five thousand. there's covid protocols in place right now so you've got about 40 to fifty thousand there just goes eerily quiet and this one little corner this one little section is losing its mind there's this like beautiful um you know it's just a beautiful moment that just sounds and feels different when you're there, when you're in San Siro, given the history of that place, given the acoustics of it um, that you don't really get when you're in an eight by eight uh, audio broom closet somewhere in America. I, and I know also, too, you had one of the all time great calls on the disallowed late <laughs> equalizer. A goal, what was it? A goal at the death on the day of his birth, something like that? Yeah, Frank Kessie was celebrating his birthday. I don't, um, I don't, I don't script my goal calls, which is why so, so often it's just, you know, me yelling into a microphone. Um, but yeah, this one, you know, obviously it was uh, Frank Kessie's birthday. It's at the death. It's, you know, the, the game's about to end. And I think that was like the second part of my goal call. And I was like, wow, I nailed that. And then sure enough, they're looking at VAR and I thought, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I got wiped out. But I appreciate that uh, the sentiment. I appreciate that you enjoyed that. You know, it's still recorded. It's there forever. It's just not going to make any highlight reels at the end of the season. It's the worst, isn't it? It's so terrible that like it's it's wasted on a moment that unfortunately you just throw that one away. You know, it, it doesn't make any highlight reels. You see it in American sports all the time, where like you know the great catches that are like a, a, a you know a, a toe out of bounds in the NFL. It's like, well, that one's not making a highlight reel. It's unfortunate. But we know what happened. Just want everyone to know that. Um, You're obviously calling Serie A games on a regular basis. What are some of the things that have stood out to you so far about this Italian season? So this season in particular is special just because of the sheer number of of title contenders that we've seen through. We're almost at the the midpoint um, of the season now. right at the midpoint of the season but i've been saying for the better part of a decade you know going back to our coverage on being sports that city i was consistently providing the most exciting football in, in in europe and i know people thought well you know if you're not watching it you thought well uv is winning every single year how exciting could that be um but regularly just the, the the number of goals the quality of goals the quality of play has been sensational for so long now um, it's just it's not your father's Serie A, it's, it's not Catenaccio, with the exception of, you know, Juve with, with a very defensive mentality being very, very successful. And I think that's had an effect. I would, I would compare it to what happened in La Liga with Barcelona, where Pep's Barca is playing tiki-taka. Other teams, even Mourinho's Madrid, realized, well, we're not going to take the ball away from these teams and, and, and beat them at their own game. And so teams became more reactive, more defensive, more counterattacking, and had their relative success in that style, right? So like one team's success in one style led to this reaction across the league that did the exact opposite. Marcelo Bielsa says that, uh, and I'll paraphrase here, that the worst thing about Pep Guardiola is that he invented the system inadvertently to beat Pep Guardiola teams, which was, you know, teams hanging from the crossbar, teams counterattacking. I think Juventus has had a similar effect just in the reverse in that they were so good, so solid defensively in that sort of old school Catenaccio style that other teams thought, well, we're not going to be able to take a 1-0 lead against Juve and park the bus and defend it. They're going to score again and they're going to try and do the same to us. And so that's where you get the Atalantas. Now, the way Milan are playing, even Inter under Inzaghi are more um, fluid, more attacking team uh, than, than 
they were under Antonio Conte. Uh, Empoli are a delight to watch. Uh, Fiorentina. You've got all of these teams throughout the league that are playing, you know, in the opposition's half, trying to win the ball back as high as possible, trying to hold on to, to possession. Napoli have been doing it, you know, going back to before Maurizio Sarri, even Walter Mazzari. And that's made for just a really aesthetic, really fun product. And the only thing that was missing was a proper title race. Occasionally, you would get Roma to challenge Juventus. Occasionally, you get Napoli to challenge Juventus. Um, now, Juve are struggling outside of the top four. And it's a genuine four-team race where I think it's more like three, but I wouldn't count Atalanta out yet. Can you alleviate my concerns that Inter might run away with it? So Inter have been um, lucky in the sense that they've been brilliant, by the way. They're, they're the best team in Serie A at the moment, and they're arguably better now than they were last year. I thought it was a legit question to ask at the beginning of the season um, where those goals that left in the summer transfer market, Lukaku, Hakimi, where do those goals come from? And I don't think anybody could have foreseen the answer being everywhere, right? Because they've had 15 different goal scorers. They scored more goals at this stage than they did last year. But where I say they've been a bit fortunate is unlike um, uh, Napoli, unlike me, Milan, they've not had any serious injuries to contend with. They, they've had all their players. They're a deep squad. But if you look at, in uh, Milan's case, players like Calabria, like Rafael Leal, were breaking out, playing at the highest level. They went the first 12 games without a loss, and then all of these important, you know, key starters get hurt. Their their form dips. Uh, same happened with Napoli. Napoli and Milan were the last two remaining unbeaten teams in Europe in the European uh, big leagues until match day 13. Both lost at the same time. Both suffered injuries, and they've had their dip. And so, if Inter continue to have this spell of good fortune, where you know none of their big players are, are injured, they're not missing then yeah, they're probably going to run away with it. I don't think that's the case though. These sort of things, you know, water finds its level, they balance out over the course of the season and it's still just a four point gap between them, uh, Milan and Napoli who are, you know, level on points in second and third. I will say this because I got to see Inter in person in randomly Moldova uh, on my story for FC Sheriff during Champions League. Came away really impressed with just how they looked in person and also Javier Zanetti sat behind me at the stadium. He really is as young looking as he appears to be. So it, it's um, it was pretty impressive. I've always been a huge Javier Zanetti fan. Uh, and I'm, it, I'm just totally impressed with how Inter has handled what they lost and in what they're doing this season at this point. Um, I do want to switch gears just a little bit to you're going to be broadcasting the very big Canada-USA World Cup qualifier in just a few weeks, number one and number two in the octagonal right now. Did you ever think there would be this much excitement heading into a Canada-USA men's soccer game? Eventually, yes. Did I think it would happen this soon? No. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, Canada uh, didn't have, you know, a, a top division until not so long ago. Uh, basically, their, their only exposure for big players was to uh, come to MLS. They, they didn't really have stars. And now they have, you know, not one star, but, but a legit number of, of players in that 11 that can really hurt you on a given day. They don't have to start all their best players. They can rotate even in this format of um, you know, three game windows and still be extremely competitive. We've seen them beat Mexico um, or should have beat Mexico. It's a blur right now what that actual result was. Um, so I, I didn't think that it would come this soon. I don't know that anybody saw just how good Canada would be in this um, in this particular window, but it is the single best thing that could happen to soccer in our half of the world, that, that it's not just, you know, Mexico and the U.S., but Mexico, the U.S., Canada, and, you know, potential dark horse making life difficult for them. Um, and, and you go into these games now, 
it used to be that you think, well, if you know, if you can scratch a point off of Mexico, uh, whether it's home or away, that's that's a good result. And now, any combination of those three teams—Mexico, USA, Canada—you generally cannot predict it. You don't know who's going to win that game, and that just adds so much, given the stakes of World Cup qualifying and given the still sort of semi-raw scabs of 2018. Uh, it just adds this extra element of uh, uh, not desperation, but uh, anticipation and a little bit of doubt. And that's what makes our game great, isn't it? That, that you're scared for your life, that things aren't going to go your way. Uh, and when they do, it's just, uh, it's sublime. I want to ask you, because you do the away games for the U.S. in CONCACAF, and we talk a lot about on our podcast with Landon Donovan about how difficult those games are and whether or not away in CONCACAF is enough of an excuse for some of the performances that we've seen. So you don't really get to see the best of the U.S., in my opinion, except for when they come back from 1-0 down to win by four goals to one away in Honduras. But uh, what, what have you seen in your games that is different about how the U.S. plays when they're away versus at home? Yeah, if we're if we're honest, the U.S. has played 45 minutes away from home at a high level, at a really good high level so far this season. You know, some good, some bad in the other ones, but the only one where you thought, okay, this is where a team is playing up to its potential was that second half comeback um, against Honduras. And Chris, I love that you went there because every uh, single time I walk out of one of those games, with the exception of that Honduras match, I get someone just looking at me saying, the away games are tough to do, huh? And they are. They're sort of joyless at times. You, you become, uh, in Spanish, say resultadista. You just want to get a result because you know it's not going to be comfortable. Uh, it's more likely than not not going to be fun. For me, they're all fun in, in large part because of the group that I work with. I think one of the things that CBS have done just so exceptionally well, whether it's in the Champions League coverage, the CONCACAF coverage, the Serie A coverage, is they just know how to put good groups together. And so we really enjoy uh, the time that we work on these games, win, lose, draw, play well, don't play well. Um, but it is sometimes it feels a little bit like a chore when it's you know minute 72 of a game of that Panama game for example you not you know not it's not going to go your way and I got crucified for like halfway through that second half asking Maurice Edu my color, my color commentator there um, hey would you take a point and I mean, people wanted just to bang their heads against the TV because of course you'd take a point with how badly things were going but I just wanted to get him on record saying yes I'd take a point this is not great and you don't want to you would know you don't want to complain for 90 minutes you don't want to um be negative uh and it's not about homerism it's about being entertaining at the end of the day because what we do is entertainment television and i come from the broadcasting school of ray hudson where football is joy you know football is supposed to be fun you're supposed to have a good time and anything that you see you know one team not playing well not not you know making mistakes yeah you can focus on the mistakes you can complain you, you can say he should have scored there or they should do better or this isn't good enough or you can give credit to the opposition that that's out there you know playing well and doing the things they're supposed to be doing and i tend to in those games shift toward praising um the, the team that's making the u.s look bad rather than uh complaining about how how poor the u.s are and it's a little tricks of the trade so that i'm not you know getting overly negative the fan at home sees what they're seeing they, they i'm not lying to them they know it's a rough go of it but i feel like maybe they're not focused enough on some of the things that the opposition is doing well and if i can highlight that then i think the broadcast is better for it i do think it's a really interesting topic that chris brought up and i'm glad you you talked about it because like did anyone ever try the slogan the official broadcaster of mediocre to bad U.S. men's national team soccer. <laughs> well, I don't think that branding is going to stick. Yeah. <laughs> if marketing um, that one out, we didn't. It didn't. It didn't trickle down to us. <laughs> I mean, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier with some with your preparation, and you know, every broadcaster has their own routine, and. 
what are some of the the other things I guess that you always do when you're preparing to call a game and how did that develop over time? I feel like at this point in my career, it's a bit like players who, when they tell you, you know, you don't get paid to play, you get paid to train. Um, that's sort of what, what the profession is like for me now, where I am so comfortable on air, where I've worked with um, such a variety of different color commentators and, and try to, you know, think I know how to get the best out of them, that it does feel like 95% of my work is the research and it's meticulous and it's joyless. And uh, I mean, I find joy in it. You have to, right? But um, but it's the part that nobody thinks about when they think about the, the life of a, of a sports journalist or, or specifically a play-by-play commentator, just how tedious so much of it is. Because I make, uh, the stickers that I make for, for teams, I make them exactly the same with the same level of detail, with the same attention and the same time spent on it, whether it's Juventus and, you know, after winning their nine Scudetto or it's Venezia in their first season in Serie A after 19 years and I know all of this stuff that I'm putting on the Juve stickers off the top of my head and I'm probably wasting my time by doing all of that but it's just part of the process part of my zen in the build-up to it that I want to be able to make sure that I have you know everywhere they've played everything they've won all the interesting stories that, that I've told in the past just in little bullet points you know they're not necessarily scripted but they're things that are easily accessible so that when they come up in a match and they most often don't come up and you have to be prepared to throw away 90% of your research and 90% of your prep in every single game that you do. But when it does happen, when Frank Kessie does score that equalizing goal in the, you know, in stoppage time of a big game in Serie A, you've got the information in front of you to, to make it a big call, to make it informative and entertaining and then for it not to count. <laughs> Oh God, I I feel I feel like you're be living that one down for a while. <laughs> Damn far, uh, but yeah, I mean you're, you're spot on certainly about like in some ways the things that require the most prep are the things that are less familiar to you. I, I, we work for Inter Miami. I, re- realistically, doing all the games is the prep. I just have to write it all down at some point. But uh, I wanted to follow on the Ray Hudson school of joy because I don't think, like, w- given how much you know commentary we're exposed to, I don't think people understand what that means because very often you hear a lot of picking apart of the things that went wrong. And Ray's philosophy is, picking apart the things that went right in a play. And I feel like that's such a different approach than most people have. And I think it's really cool that he's influenced people like you and even myself, albeit at times I do find myself probably harping a bit too much on the negative. Like that's a really different thing that not a lot of people know about. So I'd just be curious to hear kind of like how you came across that and how Ray Ray's effervescence in the in the office uh, spread to you. So I would give both um, Phil Shane and Ray Hudson a lot of credit there. I've worked with Phil since 2003. 2004. Phil is probably the main reason I went into this um, this industry. I was the um, FIU uh, radio station sports director, right? And I was writing for like the FIU sports paper doing general sports, where on a trip to Nacogdoches, Texas, hometown of the very famous Clint Dempsey, uh, FIU against Stephen F. Austin, Phil was doing the games professionally at the time and uh, for radio and said, hey, when you get to Miami, talk, talk to such and such at Goal TV, because he was a big Arsenal fan. I was in love with Spanish football. They were the ones who were covering it. And he just sort of you know, pointed at a direction at a door. And from that moment, I thought, well, I better absorb everything this guy knows. I think he's the best voice I've heard in um, American soccer broadcasting. Um, his his mantra was just don't be boring. And then you meet Ray Hudson, who is just that phrase sort of you know, materialize into like a, hu- a human being, a Jordy who grew up in like a Newcastle pub and has all of these beatnik style 
um, you know, comments about the game in front of you. Uh, polarizing, I don't think everybody loves him, but I, I think if you don't love him, you're in the wrong. Um, and so, just <laughs> my, my uh, personal opinion. Um, they both, uh, but Ray in particular, had such a, a positive attitude toward the game. And I, I contrast that to the way that I heard other broadcasters who seem to take it so seriously at times, you know, and not just in, in our game, but in all sports. And almost, you know, without criticizing anybody uh, specifically, just lose sight of how this is supposed to be fun, how fans are taking time out from their jobs, from, from their daily stresses to watch their team play, whether it's a national team or a club team, and they know everything that's wrong with their team. And they don't need you to go into a five-minute spiel about how their star player is about to be sold to some Premier League club for I don't know how much money. And if that's where your focus is on those big storylines, then I think... You lose people and you miss the the point of every single game being potentially beautiful. And so I do try and just spend my time to be present in those games, to just spend my time in what's happening in those 90 minutes, in those matches. And a lot of that comes from Ray Hudson. Ray told me once that it was a Rayo Vallecano Real Madrid game and Rayo had just played Madrid out of the park and ended up losing like 3-1 or 4-1 or something like that anyway, as they always did under Paco Jemez. Um, it's just inexplicable. The, the way that Rayo played that game, they should have won, right? And ours is the only game where you can play better than the opposition and lose, or you can play worse than the opposition and win. There's, there's certain magic to that. And Ray tells me at the end of that game, listen, if we ever figure out why any of this happens, we just turn out the lights and go cover horse racing. And I thought, yeah, 100%. That These are the things that make our game special. And I've always tried, sometimes failed, but always tried to just maintain that level of of shining the spotlight on the joy of our game because that's what makes it different from everything else. It's really cool to me to see the impact that Phil Shane and, and Ray Hudson have had on you and other broadcasters too, because there's so much history with them. Uh, Phil called the first MLS game and the history of the league on ESPN. Uh, obviously Ray goes back to the NASL, which he played in. It's, it's what brought him over here in the first place. He was coaching MLS teams in the nineties when that league was first starting. And so it's, it is really cool. I, I guess one question I would have for you is because you work with different analysts like Matteo Benetti, like Ray Hudson, like Mo Adu, do you do anything differently calling a game depending on whether you're with one of those guys or the other? 100%. Every, uh, every color commentator will be different. And I find that it's my job, um, not their job to adapt uh, to me, but rather my job to adapt to them. Um, they are the personalities. They are the former players. They are the, the, the experts, if you would. Um, and I'm just the guy sort of driving the bus, uh, making sure it doesn't go off the rails. So in... In the case of Ray Hudson, you sometimes just get out of the way, right? Like my my, I would not get that Frank Kessie call in in a game with Ray because the ball goes in and I've got a few seconds to get what I want to get and he will run you over and you want him to. He's the reason people want to listen uh, to the broadcast. And so you sort of, you're a lot shorter when you're doing a, a goal uh, and you're sat alongside Ray Hudson than you are with, say, Matteo Bonetti or, or more too. And they all have their strengths. I think um, Matteo's encyclopedic knowledge of Italian football is just incredible. And so with him, I, I really try and get the stories out. Um, this is one, one moment where I do uh, think it's worth sort of at times going away from the 90 minutes in front of you because I know that he'll have some gem that is relevant to what's going on, that's relevant to a player that's just come on. Um, and, and I try and find those those moments in that space for him to tell those great stories. Um, Moedu is just, I, I think, has the potential to be the best American 
analyst voice in, in the U.S. I think he's got the perfect combination of, you know, having played the game and the credibility that comes with that, but also being humble enough to want to learn from the people that he's working with, having good presence, having a good voice, looking, uh, looking and sounding good on camera. Um, and, and with him, we're still, uh, we've, we've been working together since, I guess, the Nations League finals. The first time I've done fewer games with him than I have with the other two. But from the first time that we called a game together, uh, that Honduras-USA uh, semifinal, which was not uh, a great uh, game in Denver, it, it felt like I was, you know, catching up with an old friend and calling my 400th game with him as opposed to my very first. Um, so we just sort of clicked in a way that, that felt natural and I didn't have to adapt too much. I could just sort of be myself and, and found that he... Um, was willing to work off of that, and I think we have a really good dynamic in that way. But you're 100% right. The the diff- I, I think every play-by-play guy should be adaptable to the personalities alongside them. And when you have personalities that are as dramatically contrasting as Ray Hudson and Matteo Bonetti, you have to have that flexibility. Kind of a random question here, but how old are you? How many years have you been calling games? And how many games do you think you've called? So I'm 39, which is old enough to stop asking people how old I look um, because it always hurts your feelings. Um, <laughs> I, I was born in Cuba, but soccer was not my first love. Um, uh, baseball, I was a general sports guy. I, I fell in love with soccer in like my late teens, um, which is really late for, for people who do what I do and are in this world. Um, realized very early on just how bad I was at the game and how much catching up I had to do both in playing it, which I still do two times a week if I can, um, and in understanding it, which, for example, when I started working with Phil and Ray and, and noticed with Ray in particular, having you know him played the game and coached the game, that he was seeing things that I could couldn't see that I didn't know to look out for. And I made it my mission to find out how to get into that perception. How do I get to a level where I'm seeing the game the way that players and coaches do? And so now if you get a compliment from from someone who played the game, hey, I love the way you call the game. Usually for me, if somebody tells me, whether it's a fan, a family member, just anybody's like, hey, you had a great call. I think that means it was a good game and you didn't fuck it up for them. You know, you didn't you didn't mess it up, so they enjoyed it. You didn't get in the way of it. But when it's a when it's a former player that tells you that, and, and you know that they can see things that other people don't, it means a little extra, I think, whether it's a coach or, or a player. Um, and so I just strive to get there, to get to that level. And I've made countless mistakes on air, uh, high profile and low profile ones. Um, it was I said again, Phil and Gold TV that gave me that first sort of direction of where to go, um, went from Gold TV, which I thought was just an incredible university for soccer, especially on the Spanish side. If you see the talent that Gold TV had in Spanish and where everyone ended up after that, it was just an absolute all-star team of broadcasters. I learned a lot from them. In a sense, my style of commentary is a blend of like Hispanic um, soccer and American soccer. I've been able to pick out the things I love from those two very different identities, right? I'm not going to be screaming and lying to you about what you're seeing the way that some Spanish broadcasters do, but I'm also not going to be as dry and and, um, and, and I let the game breathe, but not quite as much as some of, for example, the British uh, broadcasters. And so I learned a lot of that at Gold TV. Being sports was a launch pad for me, um, especially early on. They just, they had the resources, they, they covered big tournaments. We went and did you know, the, the Copa America on site, uh, the World Cup in Brazil 2014 on site. And that was another place where if you look at where a lot of those people have gone now, I'm just so incredibly proud of that group, right? Whether it, and I don't want to, I feel like if I start naming names, I'm going to leave people out. But you know who I'm talking about when I say, you know, this being sports family. Like I've, uh, people have compared us to like Ajax in terms of like, you know, this is where talent gets developed and then goes and does things elsewhere uh, in big time. And yeah, I'm incredibly proud of what I learned there, um, the work I did with them. And yet it wasn't, I think, until I started doing Inter Miami and, and MLS that 
you know, CBS, ESPN really started to take uh, a much closer, a more serious look at me. And this summer I was in this privileged position where, you know, ESPN hired me to do a couple of games uh, for, for MLS. Um, CBS hired me to do just the Nations League on a short-term thing. And for someone like me who had just been working at these, you know, lower rungs, really great places for soccer fans. If you're a soccer fan, you had to have Go TV, you had to have BN Sports. But I think when you're talking about ESPN, CBS, now you're at a different level, a different um, profile. Uh, that was just an absolute dream. And I got I got my pick. Um, I, I worked at CBS. I saw what that was like. I saw the treatment that they give where, you know, you could be Clint Dempsey or you could be me. You're going to get sort of the same love and the same um, accountability for everything you do. I thought this is where I take the next step. This is where I continue to grow. And this past weekend, being in San Siro in the booth with Matteo Bonetti, who was a partner of mine at, at had been for all those years, just validated all of that, that this is the place where I take the next step. There was one bit of Grant's question they did answer, and it actually leads into what I wanted to ask you about, which was the number of games that you've done, the sheer tonnage. And that, I think, is the most interesting part, because I've talked to a few people that work down here in Miami, uh, both at BN and at other places, that would do like four and five games a weekend, and you almost get like this Stockholm Syndrome of getting used to it, and almost enjoying it, and thinking that's what the work is supposed to be, as opposed to what most normal commentators do which is one max two games in a weekend uh so first off can you just describe what that experience of doing that many games was like and then has it almost been an adjustment to do less in a way and in some ways be you know in a, in a bigger and better position as a result yeah it is like you you get accustomed to almost like the the abuse right <laughs> because <laughs> we for for a long time when i started doing uh, commentary we would do three to five games a week and it wasn't three to five games in one league you can do in any given week you could do you know seria on friday uh league on on saturday two la liga games on a sunday you could do the turkish super league and the french league on, on the same day there it's almost too much to really be able to do your best work it's not almost too much it is too much to be able to do your best work but there aren't that many jobs in this profession if you wanted to be a, a play-by-play commentator if you want to be a commentator period you um essentially have to pay your dues uh, it's not like you know maybe color guys or analysts where your former player or former coach offers you certain shortcuts you don't get that i think as a as a play-by-play or as a tv host um in our game in the u.s and so in terms of how many games i've done if i'm just lowballing the number of just city games um before joining cbs i would a very conservative number would be around seven to eight hundred city games just that league but I also, i've also covered la liga for a good 15 years now i was this is the first season of my career where i'm not working for the la liga rights holder um and these are the leagues that you know people like and love and watch regularly right la liga uh seria liga and bundesliga which we had a goal tv for some time i've also done the africa cup of nations i've done uh afcon uh, excuse me uh, the african champions league we've done uh south american and Concacaf world cup qualifying uh did you ever get dragged into nasl Sudamericana. I did a little bit of NASL and the access to any in NASL was great. Like I loved the yeah. idea of you know being able to for a change speak to the coach right before you know before a game and get you know to pick his brain uh, as opposed to doing a Nations League or not Nations League but like a African Champions League game between a team from uh, Ghana and a team from uh, Tunisia, right? Which you have no access and the the amount of information you can find is pretty limited. Um, You're lucky to get a yeah. correct lineup before kickoff. So in, to that, Ray and I did a game one time. It was Chad, Egypt, and we did not have lineups. The only lineups available were in <laughs> Arabic. 
and it was a nightmare like their the level of anxiety that we oh, went through God. We basically like rebaptized every player we thought we figured we found an old lineup and kind of just yeah maybe it's him maybe it's not and just called it you know with with confidence just called it and a few people realized we had no idea what we were doing and, and they weren't the right names <laughs> i think a good like 60 to 70 percent maybe more thought yeah whatever these guys have to know what, what they're doing right so it's too many it's too many games to actually know how many but it's literally um you know, well over a thousand, probably in the thousands. But in some ways, it's like valuable experience, right? Like it's you get everything thrown at you, so that, like you said, when you are at San Siro, when you are at the destination that you arrived at, in some ways, you're not overall by the occasion because it's something you've done thousands of times, right? In every way, it's it's valuable, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I thought in the time that I was at BN Sports, it's hard for me to imagine that there was anybody else in this country who called as many games as I did, right? Um, Because Phil and Ray would get whatever the biggest game of the week was, uh, the one or two, maybe three games tops, and myself or before me was Ross would get virtually everything else. And so you did end up doing three to five games every single week across all of these different leagues. And I think that to do what we do, whether it's on camera or off camera, um, you have to have this feeling of just not being afraid to be to look like an absolute ass on air, to just embarrass yourself in the worst way possible. And that's happened plenty, right? And so I think a, a big reason why I'm just unfazed by somewhere like somewhere like the San Siro for Milan-Napoli is I've been through all of that. The things that could go wrong have gone wrong. I've walked away feeling like a fraud. I've walked away feeling like the best commentator in the country. And I, I found this like happy place now where I just know that it's the effort that's going to matter because I've reached levels where I can be confident about my work. So you mentioned, by the way, you were born in Cuba. You came to the U.S. How old were you when you came? Is there a story there? Yeah, I think it's an interesting story. So everyone has uh, the story about like the moment that they decided to get out, that, that, that they'd had enough. And most of my family came in the 80s. I didn't leave until uh, 1989. Me, my, my parents, and my younger brother all left together. And my dad's story, because my mom's family was all here, was I can't, I'd come home from school one day that was seven years old so daycare school whatever it was at that time um and i was like oh dad i learned a poem and i'd recited just straight up communist propaganda and my dad was like all right we're out right and so at the time it was difficult in the 80s it was easier to leave by this time it was harder especially because both my parents were engineers and if you're an engineer a doctor if you're really valuable to sort of the fabric of the society it's a lot more difficult to leave um cuba and so we did um at the time there was this racket uh it was essentially legalized human trafficking for lack of a better term between the uh fidel government in cuba and the noriega government in um panama where families living in the diaspora in the u.s could pay officials government officials in panama to then bribe officials in cuba to give you visas to get out of Panama, uh, to get out of Cuba. You can go into Panama. You weren't allowed to work, but you were allowed to have legal status there. And so my parents, who were both, you know, as I said, engineers who had reached you know, high levels in their careers, are now, uh, you know, we flew to Panama and they're, my dad's working as a mechanic, a carpenter, you know, whatever odd job he can get to try and feed us until we can figure out how to get out of Panama and into the U.S. to uh, rejoin the rest of my mom's family. My mom, a structural and civil engineer, is now, you know, selling trinkets to tourists. We ended up being in Panama for a year. While we were there, the U.S. invades to remove uh, Noriega. Um, this was 1990. And so Panama turns into essentially a war zone. We can no longer go to school. There are American 
American tanks rolling in the streets. I, I, for me and my brother, like we were so sheltered from it. Our parents did such a good job of making that a, a tolerable time for us that I just thought, cool, G.I. Joe is like downstairs near my building. This is awesome. Um, but my parents must have been terrified. And the four of us shared a two-bedroom apartment with another Cuban couple who were in a similar situation. Because again, you had a legal status. You left Cuba legally. You arrived in Panama legally. You could be there, but you couldn't work. And you had no guarantee that you'd ever end up in the United States. A lot of people went instead to South America at that time. Um, the US invades, all of this happens. There's this one moment to give you an idea of what that experience was like for me versus for my parents, where I thought we were at a party. We lived in this big apartment building. We're all on the roof of the apartment building. And I thought, this is cool. All my friends are here. The people I know from the building are here. But all of the men are actually hanging off the edge of the building with guns because at this point, like the shops had all been looted and looters had taken to robbing apartment buildings and they just go floor to floor, you know, taking whatever they can. And the, the front of the building had been barricaded. The the men of the, of, of the families are all like, you know, trying to make sure that nobody can break in. But there was this armored vehicle that was like a, a modified Jeep that was trying to break into our building. And again, I think this is the most fun party I've had all year long. Everybody else, me and all the kids do, everybody else is terrified. We, have, we were lucky enough to be close to the Swiss embassy. They saw what was happening and dropped something like a mortar shell, something next to that Jeep, and that Jeep sped off. But the juxtaposition between how I felt, how when my, birth, my little brother's birthday came up, I had some micro machines to give him for, you know, as a present when you know, my mom homeschooled us during that time and we were happy. And what that must have been like for my parents at the time was just absolutely wild. Eventually, uh, the US realizes, okay, we've got 5,000 Cubans that are just stranded in Panama. And um, many of us got uh, political asylum to come to the United States. That's how I ended up here. Thanks for sharing that. It, it, it's a pretty incredible story. So I, I, I really do appreciate you sharing that. Um, in, in sort of, you were at an age where you weren't like a baby or anything. You, you know, like, was the adjustment to the US difficult in any way? Yeah, so I was, um, I was a terrible student. I don't know if that's the fault of, you know, the, the uprooting and all that um, or whatnot, but I, I always did struggle with school. Um, I struggled caring about it. Um, I, I, I felt like, when we got to the U.S., we had family here. I think I think it's easier for us than it is for immigrants who come from a lot of other places and maybe don't have the same infrastructure that Cubans have built for themselves in South Florida. And so maybe in that sense, there are a lot of advantages. My parents are both just incredible people and go-getters who, you know, my mom uh, quickly uh, was able to uh, reinstate her, her engineering degree. Uh, my dad opened up his own business as an electrician. He went from being an electrical engineer for the main power company in, in uh, Cuba to having his own um, uh, electrician company so that my mom could go and revalidate her degrees and whatnot. They, you know, slowly but but surely sort of climbed uh, in a way that maybe other people with the same infrastructure couldn't. And so I didn't, I don't think I've, I don't know that I felt that I struggled because I don't have any point of comparison really, right? So it was just, I, I recognize that now I have two little boys who are four and two years old and that I can already give them a life that I didn't have it for two or, or seven or eight or 15. Um, and, and that part of it does feel like the American dream where my parents have done better for us than they had done for them. I'm doing better for my kids than I had done for me. And hopefully that continues. Weird transition here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I know you've known Chris Whittingham for a long time. Um, when someone asks you for stories about Chris, what do you say? And Chris, oh, no. when someone asks you for oh, stories no. about Dre, what do you say? That's interesting because, uh, so when I first met Chris, 
he was this Chris that you've seen like blossom before your eyes that is super outgoing and is working with you and is working on the Lebertard show and like all of the soccer world knows him and he's practically a celebrity. That's a fairly new Chris. I barely know that Chris. That Chris is a Chris that I'm just coming around to getting to know because I met a very shy, very polite Chris um, who just uh, seemed to soak everything up. I don't know that I have like a, a particular story, although I'm sure we shared a lot of moments in the uh, in, in the bowels of the BN sports movement. Uh, uh, building, um, talking before games, uh, sort of swapping stories about what we would be covering and probably laughing about some of the ridiculousness of it. Um, so I would just say that my story of Chris Whittingham is this like meteoric rise to like a national soccer personality that I'm just starting to get accustomed to. <laughs> uh, for for me, it, I've always been blown away, at, even in this conversation, like the well, and I, I describe you, Dre, as an academic, and I don't mean that like in a bad way. Just the sheer amount of information that you've absorbed about the game, and like all the time in the office, you just have like anecdotes about something that we were talking about at the ready. And I presume that you had not experienced most of them yourself. I feel like you had researched and like gone down rabbit holes. I, I don't think that there's a person in the American game or in broadcasting generally that just has soaked up as much information as Dre Cordero has. Uh, in terms of stories, uh, a, a legend on the football pitch. I, I love love playing <laughs> love playing a, a five-a-side game with Dre. Boss is a midfield, knows exactly what to do. Uh, so, yeah, I, but I, I, I just like, when I, I, when I talk to people about Dre, it's just about what a knowledgeable commentator he is and how thoroughly well-researched he is. And that's like, for me, like the number one skill the number one like compliment that I can pay to someone because like you said earlier it is about the prep it's about the information it's about knowing as much as you can about anything so you can be prepared on a moment's notice to have it at the ready and I, th I, I think Dre is top of the line in that respect that, that's all extremely kind but I'm not going to correct the record on any of it so just let it stand with me <laughs> I will say that's why I'm surprised to hear you say that at any point in your life you were not a good student because academic is the word that Chris has always used to, in, when talking to me to describe your approach to broadcasting and preparing and studying and all of that. So if there was ever a point in which you weren't a good student, I, you're, I don't know, I guess I'll believe it, but I kind of don't. <laughs> So, so there was—it's the opposite. There was never a point where I was a good student, right? So I am a good student of the game. Like I, I love the game, and I've been able to work in the things that that I enjoy and love. And I was always a good writer. That was the only sort of honors classes that I ever had. Was this is an interesting story actually? So coming over from from Cuba, and I didn't do second grade. Took a test. They put me in third grade. Um, they removed me from this. My parents took me out of the school where I was because I had a teacher that made fun of me for not being able to speak English. Imagine, like, this is the sort of level that we were living in at the time. Uh, go to another school, wonderful teacher. That was third grade, fourth grade. They marched me to the principal's office. I think I'm in trouble. They put me in honors English. They were like, they, they, we had to, like, all write poems. And my poem, like, blew my teacher away. And she's like, no, you can't be in a regular class. Uh, this happened in the span of a year, right? And so it wasn't until I left Gold TV, I started working at BN Sports, I recognized the opportunity that that afforded me that I said, there's something just off. Like there's, there's a reason why I wasn't able to be able to study the way that I, that I wanted to, why I couldn't just sit down and get the work done. And I remember being a high school kid, frustrated with myself that I couldn't just get the stupid essay done on time. And every single time it was like putting something together the morning of to turn it in to just not get a zero. And then the test would come around and I'd ace the test. Um, so I, I spoke with the psychiatrist and he told me, you are a classic case of ADHD. Like you need help for ADHD. And that was 
so I started taking Adderall and it was genuinely a miracle drug for me. And it's a difficult thing, I think, to talk about with most people because we live in a, in a time when everybody believes that they're something and everybody is a little ADD and, um, you know, attention spans are short. But I do feel like the me professionally before and after I got help for ADHD are two people with dramatically different ceilings. And, and the me before it would not have been at the San Cito this past weekend, would not have been able to put in the work required to be a play-by-play uh, commentator at this level, even though I love the game. Um, the fact that I got help for it, it, it was just genuinely, it felt like my mind had just opened up and I was able to do all of these things that I wanted to do where it was an impo- a physical impossibility before. Just to wrap up here, and thanks for all the time, um, you know, like... You've addressed a lot of things in this interview that I think would be good for students who want to do what you do eventually someday. But are there any other specific things that you, you know, pieces of advice that you would share with anyone who's a student right now who wants to do what you do? Yes. Also, um, in the course of that last answer, it occurred to me that it would make for a very funny um, Ted Lasso character to have a commentator who is ADHD and doesn't have any help and is just like permanently distracted by what's going on around. But that, that aside, um, yeah, I, I talk to a lot of, in fact, it, it's always flattering when, you know, college, high school students who want to do what we do reach out and they ask, you know, for advice or they ask for time. And I'm always happy to, you know, hop on a Zoom call or a phone call, um, time permitting. Um, I think we are in a point now where they have so many opportunities to do things that we couldn't do when I was getting started and to find your microphone voice and to get comfortable with hearing yourself and to make mistakes, even if nobody else is watching, right? Like the best we could do is put a game on and mute the game and you know pretend to call it in your living room. Whereas now, be it a podcast, YouTube, whatever it is, get the reps in because you're going to be awful at first and you're going to be awful for a while. The first game that I did, um, Ian Joy had harassed me for like a week and a half because his commentator at the time had left to go somewhere else. He didn't like the other options. He wanted me to work with him. I was like, all right, fine. I walked out of Rayo Atletico, which are two teams that I absolutely love, having done a terrible job, but feeling like I need to get good at this. Like this is what I want to do. So I would say keep your options open because I thought I wanted to be a writer and ended up in television. In television, I figured, great, I want to be on camera and realized that I just wanted to be in a dark room or a dark stadium somewhere and call games. So keep your options open. You don't know what you're going to fall in love with. Grind because there literally are no shortcuts, especially if you're not a former player or former coach. Um, and, and get started now. Like, Don't wait for the interview. Don't wait for whatever. Just any way that you can get reps, record your voice, record your face, get out there and, and work on, on worthwhile projects to you. Do it immediately. Do it yesterday because we didn't have those technological advantages back in the day. Andres Cordero is the lead soccer commentator for CBS Sports and Paramount Plus, broadcasting Serie A games and the U.S. men's national team's away World Cup qualifiers. He also does Inter-Miami's local broadcasts with Ray Hudson. Dre, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Andres Cordero as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. See you next time.